It's a delight to be here to be with you. Um, what um, you may know, some of you who have a Brentwood Academy background, BA Academy background, Kurt Masters, um, when uh, Rob read the uh, beginning of the Kimiali translation, if memory is correct, that was Kurt's parents uh, who started that project. And so um, we, you, those of you BA families can check me out on that, but ask Kurt about it. I'm almost certain that was his father who was killed over there. And uh, the translation was picked up. They make a, a stone memorial to his dad that if you go on the YouTube and watch the whole 10-minute video, you can see a glimpse of the um, memorial they gave to his father after his death um, to commemorate his initiation of that language group over there. So it's quite a, quite a legacy um, to think how many of us have how many Bibles in our home, and they have one. Um, it's remarkable that men and women will spend their life in linguistic challenge like that. It is a long process. It takes about 30 years on average. And uh, so that project took a little longer, but I know um, it exemplifies every people group that gets their language in print. And uh, it's a long, exciting process. Throughout our series on the Word, we have been stressing the need for a better understanding of this book, not merely for academics, for content, not merely for more information, not merely to be better sinners and better educated sinners, but to appreciate that God has spoken in his word, that it is true, it is reliable, it is trustworthy, not only for matters of salvation, but for our very lives, for our lives of faith and faithfulness as we try to follow Jesus Christ by his word and by his spirit. The word of God is to be a delight to us. It is to feed our spiritual hunger. It is to nourish us in ways that nothing else on the planet can nourish us. It is to satisfy us in ways that nothing else can satisfy. It is to teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the nature and character of our God and King. And so our constant exposure to it is not merely, again, for information or more Bible knowledge, which is great, but it is so we will be conformed more and more into the image of our God and Savior. We are to be less like our sinful selves and more like our sinless Savior. That's sanctification. Are you, am I, any less like we were a year or two ago because of our exposure to God's Word, God's Spirit, and alongside God's people? We discussed, as Rob mentioned, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy, sufficiency, the necessity, the clarity, the truthfulness of Scripture. And today we want to focus on a little bit different tangent of it, the Word of God as the exclusive nature of the gospel. It's a little bit of a heady message, but um, I don't want to leave you just there. But to understand the exclusivity of the gospel is important. If this is the Word of God, if He's spoken, and revealed himself, as the author of Hebrews said, in many portions, in many ways, to the prophets over the years. But in the final days, he's, he's spoken to us in his Son. So Jesus Christ, the God-man, becomes the personified Word of God. He lived and dwelt among us. The Word was living among us. And so as we're exposed to this, uh, do we understand the exclusive nature of what Jesus is saying? Do we understand this isn't one philosophy on the library of life? This isn't one theology in a host of theological seminaries. It is an exclusive message given by the exclusive Son of God for a response for people to respond to Him. 
If you grew up in a Christian environment or have been around churches with the Christian lingo, you've perhaps heard or adopted the phrase, once saved, always saved. We use that pretty cavalierly in the way we talk about salvation. But to understand our salvation is secure once for all, that there is no other way to be saved than by the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have articulated a popular view of exclusivity. We're saying there's only one way to heaven. By nature, when we say there is only one way to heaven, we are saying all other ways are wrong. And in a world that is tolerant and all about fairness and all about being kind and gentle to one another and getting along and having one big kindergarten sandbox, if you will, uh, we live in very tremulous times to say that Jesus Christ is the only way. Philosophical and theological differences are not new. They go back uh, centuries. But when these issues started bubbling up, the challenge of what did Jesus say? What is at the core of what you and I need to believe? What is the gospel precisely? What are we asked to believe, to embrace, to do, to know we have properly understood this gospel, this system? If you have your Bible open to Galatians chapter 1 to begin, Galatians 1 verse 6, um, Paul writes the believers in Galatia, it's often referred to as his primer before he would write the, the letter to the church at Rome, Romans, which would be his magnum opus of sorts. Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 to 9, Galatians chapter 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed as we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is teaching a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. The Net Bible renders it condemned to hell. He is to be condemned to hell. Paul writes to believers in Galatians and says, if anyone alters, if anyone tweaks, if anyone changes this gospel we gave to you, it'd be better he was cursed to hell. There's one gospel, and it is an exclusive gospel, and it cannot be amended and adulterated. Let me define five terms. A little bit of a Sunday school class feel, perhaps. But let me give you five terms as we think about this exclusivity of the gospel and how the Word of God speaks clearly to the nature of the gospel being exclusive. First of all, pluralism. Pluralism simply means that every religion is true. They're all true. Uh, each provides a genuine encounter with some ultimate. John Hick, who is a scholar, he's passed away in 2012. John Hick started out as a fundamental evangelical, Bible-believing, Presbyterian-oriented guy who was straight-laced down the line. And over his uh, academic scholarship lifestyle, uh, he moved quite a bit. And Hick becomes kind of the father of Western pluralism. He was in the UK most of his life, but he taught all over the world. Um, he writes, I have, found, uh, I have not found that people of other world religions are, in general, on a different moral or spiritual level from Christians. 
The basic ideal of love and concern for others and of treating them as you wish them to treat you is, in fact, taught by all great religious traditions. I don't know what he was reading. But what he has said is to say the golden rule, treat others as you wish to be treated, was universal in all world religions. He did not study Islam. He did not study biblical, evangelical, fundamental Christianity. He did not study Judaism. But for him to make these over-the-top statements, and this is what happens to, unfortunately, too many in this scholastic world, pluralism, everything's true. Every religion is true, and you have this encounter with the ultimate. While this may seem academic and erudite, it defines and explains why most mainline denominational churches have moved clearly away from this book, clearly away from doctrines and confessions of faith that they once held and they once fought for, and they now believe anything. And it's okay for you to believe anything. That's pluralism. Second term is relativism. And of course, that's an easy word to understand. It's relative. The idea of relativism, there's no way to tell if one religion is true or another religion is right. It's all relativism. The third word is inclusivism, which, of course, rings very close to uh, the way we look at things from a moral, cultural way. We have to be inclusive of all types of people and race and orientation and, and preferences. It's all racially motivated, sexually motivated, it's culturally motivated, it's social science motivated. We're inclusive. In this area of, of theology, inclusivism says that there's one religion which is true. And other religions, if you live them sincerely, uh, you can sort of be grandfathered into the one religion. You can be included. Now, an example of this, an illustration, not the illustration, is Vatican II. The Catholic Church prior to Vatican II, you had to be Catholic to be uh, given an opportunity to go to heaven because they're semi-Pelagian and Armenian. You can't know for sure you're going to heaven if you're Roman Catholic in the pure doctrine of the Council of Trent. So after uh, Vatican II, they said, well, if you're a really, let's put it this way in my language, a good card-carrying Protestant who's faithful, you have a good chance. It'd be better if you were Catholic. But we're no longer going to say you must be Catholic. They're going to say the Catholic Church is the only church but to be inclusive, if you're a faithful Protestant, you have a chance. That would be inclusivism. Inclusivism, of course, uh, bleeds over into all sorts of other religious and philosophical systems. And it bleeds into our language because we as a culture worship being inclusive, worship being diverse, worship that we all got to get along. We don't understand it. We don't see it. But that affects the way we think. It affects the way you read the Bible. Because when you're browbeaten by culture and school systems and universities and academics and erudites, and they're telling you, you have to be inclusive of all things, fill in the blank. What happens over a while is we start believing it. So from a theological and philosophical perspective, those who hold to inclusivism, one religion is true, and God may grant salvation to others who are outside that religion. Fourth is universalism, which of course is like the word. Regardless of religion, all are going to be saved. Universalism is simply looking at God as this benevolent uh, entity, the ultimate entity, and in the end, everybody's going to go to heaven. He's going to make all things right because he's a good and loving and kind God, so it's universalism. Now, here's the one flaw or fly in the universalist 
ointment. Universalism technically says everybody's going to go to heaven unless you're exclusivistic. If you hold there's only one way, then you're not a universalist and we can't play together. Which shows you the, the flaws in the logic system. It's, you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't tell somebody else what to believe. Doesn't that sound like our culture? Doesn't that sound like what we're beating over the head and shoulders with all the time? Tolerance, universalism, everybody's going to get along, inclusion, diversity. We worship these concepts. But when it leaks into our theology and our view of Scripture, there's more at stake than just being socially or politically correct. Finally, fifth, exclusivism. There's one true religion, one true God, and all others are false. They're false, they're wrong, they're in error. Now, when you say exclusivism, uh, those are fighting words in our culture today. Islam would be unapologetically an exclusivistic religious system. Judeo, Judeo history from an orthodox to, or formed to an orthodox view of, of Judaism would be an exclusive religious system. Evangelical, biblical, fundamental Christianity is an exclusivistic belief system. But when you get into universalism, well, it, it's all going to work out. Everybody's going to go to heaven except those who hold to an exclusive view of the gospel, except those who hold an exclusive view of Islam, except those fill in the blank. It's pluralism, all religions are true. Uh, relativism, we can't know. We don't know which one's true. Inclusivism, one is probably the best, and the others are sort of grandfathered in if they're sincere in their belief system. Universalism, that everybody's going to go to heaven, Erewhon, Nirvana, wherever you want to call it, except those who are exclusivistic, and finally, exclusivism. Now, Michael, why are you doing this to me? Good question. Good question. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be really clear of what we're explaining, what we're asking people to believe, what we're teaching, and why we hold to it. Dr. W. Gary Phillips, a former professor at Bryan College, now a pastor at Signal Hill, has written some extraordinary books and articles. And he talks about this idea of truth being uh, relative. Listen to what he writes. If truth, is it absolute or is it relative? If truth is relative, then the Bible's claim that Jesus died on the cross and the Koran's claim that Jesus did not die on the cross can both be true. If you hold to a relative view of truth, then two things that are completely at odds can still be true. Aristotle was probably the first one that came up with the law of non-contradiction, meaning two things that were claimed to be true, if they were opposite, one had to be wrong. So if I said, right now it's pouring down rain outside, and we open the door and the sun's shining, one of those things is true and one of them is false. They cannot both be true. Well, prior to about two centuries ago, one century for sure, philosophers and theologians all agreed in the law of non-contradiction. That if there were two things that were true and they were at odds, something was wrong. And one of those obviously was not true. That no longer holds true today. It's common in theological schools, it's common in philosophy departments to live with two completely incompatible, quote, truths, close quote. 
because that's the way the whole academic scholastic thing has shifted. Increasing pluralistic view has caused evangelicals to question what they believe. It's caused evangelicals to doubt what they believe. Now, to listen to Mother Teresa, we'll give you an example of where she starts with an exclusive statement, but she moves to inclusion and ultimately to pluralism. Listen to what she said. There is only one God, and he is God to all. Therefore, it is important that everyone is seen as equal before God. If we stop there, cowabunga. We're in great shape. She's made an exclusive statement. Now watch what she says further. I've always said we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, a Catholic become a better Catholic. Inclusive and plural. She moved from an exclusive statement. It's one God. And then she started including everybody. And the outcome is, well, you just be a better whatever. That's pluralism. You'd be a better Catholic, a better Hindu, a better Muslim, a better fill-in-the-blank. Now, evangelicals who have grown up in churches have heard these messages in subtle kind of ways. In the 80s and 90s, this was these were big debates. And for those of you who read Christianity Today or Moody Monthly or Discipleship Magazines or any type of publication, you may remember some of those articles and times. Others would not. But that affects where the church is today. Why are you here at an independent, non-denominational, weirdo church called Fellowship? You've left something of a background and found your way here for a variety of reasons, no doubt. I'm part of this movement because I came out of a denomination that no longer believed this. And I moved away. And I found a place that taught the Bible. And I went to learn to teach the Bible. And I went to be part of churches that taught the Bible. And the exposition of Scripture as the very Word of God was the foundation. We've mentioned many times, you're, you're really weird to be here. I'm really weird. You knew that already. But you're odd to be here. I recently got to be friends with a couple that spent 50 years in Nashville, living 50 years living in Nashville. And um, we've had a couple of meals together, and I've got the most incredible history of Nashville from this couple. They know everything about it. And they're in a mainline church in a part of Nashville, and they sneak over to fellowship. And they've been checking us out. They don't like all this. They don't like the music, too loud. You know that story. But they love that we teach the scripture. And they love that it's not built on one personality, which is novel. And we were talking over lunch recently, and um, this person who's part of this mainline church and 50 years involved with it, building committees, search committees, the whole nine yards, said, quote, we are part of an apostate church. 50 years ago, it wasn't. Fifty years ago, it opened the Bible and explained it just like we do. Now, they, their music 50 years ago wasn't what it is today. But they opened the Bible and explained it. So here's a couple, an older couple, sharp as a tack, smart, very wise, who says, you know, we're part of it. We're, we're there for all the wrong reasons. We've been there 50 years. That's hard to leave a place you've been 50 years. That's huge. John Sanders wrote an article, Is Belief in Jesus Christ Necessary for Salvation? 
Everett Osborne, those who have never heard, have they no hope? And this, these are begging really big questions underneath the simple title. The question becomes, is there redemptive hope for people who have not heard the exclusive gospel? In fact, this group calls them the untold. So when we saw a people group here, the Kimyalis, prior to having their language, of course there, was an Indon, there is an Indonesian commerce language that people know, but to get it in their dialect and have a grammar and a vocabulary for a, a spoken-only language, long process, about 30 years today, uh, to get that put into a language format, to get grammars produced, to teach people who have never read how to read those grammars, to introduce simple sentence structures in their language and syntax, vocabulary challenges, stylistic challenges, idiom expressions, then to translate the Bible into that context is no small project. And then when they finally open it and read it for the first time, tears. Because they're reading, number one, the very word of God, number two, and their own tongue, number three. Nothing like it. Hope it brought, it, I've seen it six times now. It wrecks me every time I see it. There's a 10-minute version out there if you really want to make yourself miserable. What about those who haven't heard? Can God send those to hell who've never heard? So what we do now is we ask an emotional question, a passionate question that moves us to say, well, God wouldn't send people to hell that never had an opportunity to hear, but we've got the question out of alignment. We have to begin with man's condition. We are all sinners. There's not one righteous, no, not one. All of us like sheep have turned astray. There's no one. We are all on a freight train going to hell with no handbrake. It's not as though God is unkind or unmerciful because some hear and some do not. It's he's merciful and gracious and kind because anybody hears. If God was truly to be fair and just and righteous, he would let us all go to hell. That's the place you begin the story. But see, culture can't, can't do that because we've got to be inclusive and tolerant. And diversity is better. And we're a much better country because we try to amalgamate all of our cultures and foods and spices. And there's a romance to that that makes so much wonderful cultural sense and makes total, pure theological nonsense. That's pluralism. That's inclusivism. That's relativism. The gospel is exclusive. And that's hard. When you and I live in a world, we are saturated and inundated and bombarded with the expressions of inclusive and tolerant and fair and kind. Otherwise, you are intolerant. You are hateful. You're mean-spirited. And even the strongest and kindest of us starts to step back and go, well, I don't want to be hateful and mean-spirited and unkind and intolerant. I want to be all those things. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the world teach you how to think. Think biblically. Sure, be engaged in your culture. Sure, understand the arguments, but don't let them tell you what's true. And we are in an onslaught. Why is it important? The lack of clarity in the gospel about why we believe what we believe has eternal significance. Not only are teachers, and James warned, you who, uh, very few of you become teachers because you will incur, incur a greater judgment. If you teach a Sunday school class, if you teach adults, if you teach a Bible study in your home, Rob, Lloyd, Bill, and I, we are toast when it comes to being judged. 
He's going to judge us for our works. And part of that judgment for a person who said, I'm going to teach Scripture, is did you teach it well? And he will judge us for it. I tell young aspiring pastors, are you sure you want to do this? And when they talk about all the things they worry about, I go, if you're not a little bit scared every Sunday morning you stand up, you shouldn't do this. Because you're going to tell people what God says. And some people are going to believe it just because you said it. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. And you should study. You should check out Bill, Lloyd, Rob, and me. Especially me. I'm always on the cutting edge of heresy. <laughs> Leading people astray with the gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, let him be accursed. This is no small business. Three propositions about salvation. Number one, Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Turn to John 3.18. John 3.18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know the story of Nicodemus, the new birth. But we seldom look at verse 18. We know 16 and 17. Some know 17. Very few know 18. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not judged. If you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you've passed out of death into life. You are not judged. If you believe in Christ, you have a new relationship. You are no longer judged. He continues, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we all begin as not believing and that was Nicodemus' question. How is one born again? Well, you must believe. What do I believe? How, how am I born again? You've got to believe in him. And so this conundrum that Nicodemus, who's a priest who should have known better, right? But here Jesus says, if you believed, you've passed out of judgment, we would paraphrase. And he, as he restates later, later, but Jesus is here. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's exclusive. Christ is saying, if you don't believe in me, Christ as the salvation, as the only way, you're judged. All mankind is on a freight train going to hell with no handbrake. And those who believe in Christ are then taken off that freight train and granted eternal life. So number one, most important in, this, in these three declarations is that Christ is the only way of salvation. Secondly, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for all sinners to be saved. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for all sinners to be saved. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at this in one more passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Lots of passages we could look at to illustrate this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. And then the big word is imperfect righteousness to any sinner. Look at verse 21. He who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One more time. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imputation is a big word. Uh, the simplest way to explain it would be if your bank account right now is um, $2,700 and change, and someone was to, between now and the time you checked your account, deposit $10 million in your bank account. Number one, you'd be very happy. Number two, you'd be very suspicious something was wrong. 
And if you're smart, you go to the banker and say, hey, uh, there's $10 million that I can't account for in my bank account. Would you check it? And they check it and go, no, a legitimate deposit was made. You have $10 million more in your account than you thought you did. You'd probably be pretty happy. I'd be pretty happy. You can be reserved. I'd be really happy. <laughs> that was imputed. I didn't earn it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't deserve it. It was given to me. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, accounted to him. It was put in his bank account. It's a similar idea of imputation. When you and I trust Christ's work on the cross, his work on the cross is imputed to the sinner. So you'll often hear me say he died in our behalf, in our, in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. He died. I should have been up there on my behalf. Instead of me, he did it for me. In my place, on my behalf. That's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ lived, he died on a cross for sinners. And any and all who believe in that, their sin is imputed, and his righteousness is imputed to that person who trusts, who believes in Jesus Christ. And last, salvation requires a person put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And let me add, in this life. What's happened in the last decade or two has been this move in evangelical seminaries and, and Bible colleges and churches that there is a second chance theology. After you die, God's going to give you one more opportunity. That's a lie. It's not taught in Scripture. But it's being taught in seminaries and Bible colleges, and more importantly, it's being taught in church pulpits all over the country. Our pulpits move to the left, never to the right. And I don't mean conservative Politically, I mean theologically. Seminaries always list to the left. Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Andover all began as what we would call Bible-believing seminaries, training men for ministry. They had learned Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French. They had to be very smart academics, and they were trained to exposit the Scripture. The Presbyterian Church, in its formation, was rock-solid theologically. The seminaries drift to the left. I have a friend who is at Princeton. He's in an endowed chair by an evangelical Presbyterian group and was up there a number of years ago, and he took me to the B.B. Warfield Library. B.B. Warfield is a, a great Reformed hero. And um, Princeton, understand, was a seminary one day. And he took me all around the campus, and it's a godless campus. And you go to the B.B. Warfield Library, and he says, Michael, on, I think it was Tuesday nights, we have between two and 400 students who come here for a Bible study that I teach. And he said, you know what we have? everything at Princeton except God. The same can be said for Harvard, for Yale, for Andover. They were fundamental, Bible-believing, we would call them evangelical today, seminaries that have all shifted to the left. Christian colleges, universities that start out with a very clear doctrinal statement, they never list to the right. They always list to the left, liberal in their theology. That's why mainline denominational churches most of them wholesale have left and abandoned this as the exclusive gospel as the very word of God. And that's why they teach inclusion and diversity. And they have far more emphasis and interest in social works and social ministries than they do the exclusivity of the gospel. So that's why churches like Fellowship are born. Carl Henry asked, why do the liberals always get the buildings? Why are we meeting in a warehouse? And they're meeting in a palatial palace that's empty, theologically. 
It's not to say there aren't men and women of faith in those groups. It's not to say that. There are men and women of faith in those groups. But their pulpits and their Sunday school teachers and their leaders do not believe what the elders at fellowship would want you to believe, and more importantly, what Scripture teaches. The last passage is 1 Corinthians 15. Salvation requires faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. There are many places in the New Testament we could define the gospel. I would argue this is perhaps the clearest or at least the one-stop shop we could go to to see how Paul explains the gospel. And it's based on the resurrection. And the emphasis in chapter 15 is on the dead or the alive. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you that which is of first importance, what I also received, Number one, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Number two, that he was buried. And that, number three, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He died, he was buried, he raised, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain on um, Verse 7, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, literally a miscarriage, uh, he appeared also to me. The death, burial, and resurrection. The components are clear. So we have that he died for our sins. He's buried. Why is the burial important? It's the confirmation he's dead. He wasn't swooned. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead. He lived. He died. He was buried then he's resurrected over that. And then no less than four different sequences of appearances to larger and larger groups, 500 people at one time, who were eyewitnesses to the account that he, was over, that he overcame uh, death and he lived again. So Paul continues in 15, and I would encourage you to read it this week, the clearest passage of the gospel. And he, he's saying that if we're wrong here, all bets are off. To put it in current language, if we're wrong here, I would, I would vote for relativism because none of the other categories matter. Pluralism doesn't matter. Inclusive doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If Christ is not raised from the dead, all bets are off. You may as well eat, drink, and be merry. Go, go after money, sex, and power till you're insatiated, inebriated, intoxicated, you're delirious. Do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. If he was not raised from the dead, we are fools, Paul says, to believe any of this. The doctrine of biblical Christianity, the exclusive nature of the gospel, depends upon whether Christ was resurrected or not. But come back to our culture. and we're, If I say, if you don't believe in Christ and Christ alone, you will spend eternity in hell. Boy, that's not kind, tolerant, that's not diverse, that's not patient, that's hateful, that's hate speech for goodness sakes. And by our culture, yes it is. But let's see if we can reframe it just a little bit. Let's say we're all born with spiritual cancer. You've probably heard this illustration before. We're all born with cancer called sin. The moment we're conceived, we have cancer in us and we're going to die. Now, in cancer, you know some of you too well, there are all kinds of treatment opportunities. From traditional chemotherapy and radiation and surgery to all sorts of increments in between to a completely, you know, uh, uh, um, 
I won't get too specific, but let's just say alternative ways to approach cancer. Let's say there's 60 different ways you can approach cancer treatment, from traditional medicine, cutting-edge medicine, all the way to homeopathic, uh, oil, you know, <laughs> vegan, you name it, whatever you want, eat grass, whatever, uh, all the way from chemo to eating grass. Traditional medicine is going to tell you this cancer is 60% success rate. Those eating vegan are going to tell you some number, all right? All points in between. Now, there's one over here that says, I'm going to tell you how to cure your spiritual cancer. You put your faith in someone to do for you what you can't do for yourself. It's 100% guaranteed. Amen. And your cancer will be resolved. Guaranteed. 100%. Have I been discriminating against all these others and unfair to chemotherapy, unfair to holistic dieting, unfair to vegan, unfair to whatever. How unkind and intolerant of me to say those treatments are wrong. I didn't say they were wrong. I'm saying this one promises life. Because by nature it promises life. Yes, those are wrong. But the world flips it on its head and says, we are intolerant. You're unkind to say Islam or Hinduism or Confucianism or, you know, hmm, whatever you want to believe. Lotus position, Oprahism, whatever you want to believe. Those are all, those are all wrong. How intolerant, unkind, hateful you are. You should go to jail for such hate speech. That's what the world tells you and me. Jesus said, I lived, I died. I came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised forgiveness of sin and granted eternal life with me. Now what happens in theological circles, and on this I'm almost done, is that once you move into this inclusion and pluralistic worldview, what happens is they have to do away with hell. And they all eventually do. Because what kind of God would send a child to hell? What kind of God would send a person who never had a chance to hear the gospel to hell? That kind of God I want nothing to do with. That's like a two-year-old telling his or her parent how to do life. But that's what the world, that's the Kool-Aid the world is drinking and selling. And you and I have got to reframe our view and say, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. We begin at the same place. We all deserve hell. We're all sinners. We're all going to hell. Why is hell a literal place? And why do people try to erase it with annihilation? Here's, here's the reason, beyond the fact that Scripture is very clear about hell. Here's the reason I, I believe hell's a real place. You and I were made in the image of God. Animals were not. Creation was not. We are made as the image bearers of God. Because of that, we live forever. The only difference is relationship and location. With whom you will spend eternity and where you will spend eternity. God will not destroy his image. God will not annihilate his image. And here's the chilling part. Why do we all need resurrected bodies? Because this body cannot withstand eternal life or eternal punishment. So even those that will spend eternity in hell will have an eternal body. Because it's the only way they can withstand eternal torment. That's what Scripture teaches. You're going to be called all kinds of things if you believe it. I don't say lead with it. I don't say that should be the axiom of your life. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. But at the end of the day, I want you to have courage 
to know this is what God has said. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given forgiveness of sin, promised eternal life with him. The spiritual cancer is 100% dealt with. Period. End of story. He came back from the dead to prove it. And any and all who believe are granted that. You want to try the isms and ologies? That's what the world is going to do. So don't fight the isms and ologies. Don't go out there with worrying about the PC and what you're going to say and do and be diverse and inclusive and kind and not hateful. Know why you believe what you believe and be cemented in the fact that he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone, alone in this life, not the next, are promised eternal life with him, forgiveness of sin, and a right relationship. And I will tell you, something happens in the spirit of a person who trusts Christ and your life changes your life changes. To know you're forgiven, that's the one that just always clocks me, that he forgives me over and over and over and over again. And he looks at me and sees the work of his son, not the work of my sin. Boom. And it should dismantle you every time. Or you don't understand your Savior. And it's not a have to, it's a get to. It's not a should, it's that we can live for him. This life is a vapor, men and women. And we're dancing around political correctness and people are going to hell. We're dancing around political correctness and we don't know what we believe anymore. And Well, maybe these people are right. Maybe, maybe people are annihilated, not image bearers of God. He loves you. He's not mad at you at me. He's not mad at people that hate him. He wishes that none perish, no, not one. He's patient to a world why are we still here? Why in the world has he not rolled up time, for goodness sakes? I pray that he rolls it up soon. I'm ready for this place to be gone. I'm ready to be done. Maybe you're not. Sorry. I hope my prayer answer, not yours. I wish he'd come back and just start it over. I'm tired. He's patient. And he loves. If you're here today and you don't know Christ... I hope you'll rethink. He loves you. He knows all about you. He knows all you've ever done. He still loves you. There's not a sin you've committed he can't forgive you for. He loves you immeasurably. He's the cure for your spiritual cancer. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. Don't let the world teach you theology. Let the Word and God's Spirit teach you theology. And God's people come alongside you. And if you need answers to questions, to good questions, Rob or myself or Eric, any of the staff here would be happy to talk to you about what it means. You can know that you know that you know that you know that you know you'll spend all eternity with Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He took care of your sin condition. He came back from the dead. And all you have to do is believe. Put your faith and trust in him. Trust him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Why is that so difficult? Or you can live with the isms and ologies until your heart's content and never know. He cured cancer once for all. 100% cure rate. Or he's a liar. Let's stand and we will close with our two questions from the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. 
What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. I pray you will glorify and enjoy him this week. God bless you.